Welcome to Musically Challenged, your weekly helping of random music conversations based on whatever topic the guys choose. Their goal is to entertain and inform you on a variety of themes. This podcast is an expression of their lifelong love and commitment to music. Simply stated, music is life. This show may include adult themes and language. Once again, welcome to Musically Challenged. Here are your hosts, Chad and Lou. Welcome to episode 56. Really? 56? No shit. Wow. Of Musically Challenged, your weekly helping of random music conversations based on pretty much whatever the hell we want. I'm your host, Chad Knight, and with me as always is Lou Schwalbach. Good evening, sir. This week we're going to be talking about songs dealing with drugs and or addiction. When it comes to drugs and their addictions and or abuse, there are three zones. The illegal zones that houses such things as heroin, cocaine, meth. The, the big ones. The big ones, yeah. Yep. Then there's the legal zone that has things like alcohol, nicotine, and depending on your local laws, weed. Okay. The third, and sadly becoming worse, area is the gray zone, which houses things that are typically legal to get but are illegally used, such as prescription drugs. All kinds of drugs can form addictions that claim the lives of many people on a daily basis. Drugs don't give a shit or play favorites if you're famous or not. Actors and musicians sometimes use the pressures of their celebrity status as an excuse to use them, and oftentimes that use gets the better of them. And we lose someone incredibly talented too soon, such as Bon Scott, Prince, John Belushi, or Jimi Hendrix. Right, right. Of course, there is hope, and sometimes they kick the habit and succeed, not only in staying alive, but also in having a legit career such as with Eric Clapton and Robert Downey Jr.'s career rebound. Many former or current addicts use their experiences with their substance of choice as an inspiration for songs. Some of the songs will be on this week's list. There will be no restrictions on genre or artist, just that it has to deal with drugs or addiction. Now, I wanted to say something witty or humorous about shooting up or getting high, but there really isn't anything appropriately funny about that, so... Let's just get the show started. I think that's a legit thing to do. Yeah. So, how you been, sir? Pretty good. Uh, it's been a while, and the weather's getting kind of nicer. It's not as freezing uh, as cold. Yeah, yeah. Some of this white crap is melting, which is nice. That's always nice. Uh, it's supposed to get brisk again soon, but, you know, hey. It's Wisconsin. It is, and it is only February, although it's almost, it's almost half, it's more than halfway through February already. Yeah. That's, that's pretty insane. Yeah, Valentine's Day was yesterday. As of when we're recording, anyway. Not as of when they will hear this, but... Tis true. Uh, yeah, but, you know, it's uh, it's one of those things that... Uh, Wisconsin spring is always a crapshoot. Oh, yeah. I mean, there are times when you get springs in the 70s and 80s, and, like, it sucks to be in school still. Right. And then there's other times when you have a tea time scheduled, and you get eight inches of fucking snow. <laughs> Well, you know, and my birthday's in early April, so it's always a crapshoot. Oh, mine's in late April. It's the same way. Yeah. My, my, mine, mine was an actual story, though. I had a tea time schedule for my birthday, and we got eight inches of snow. It was gone in three days. Wow. It sucked. I was that, pissed. I'm like, <laughs> God damn it! My, my goal of a good spring is if all the snow at normal level is gone, the stuff up on the mountain is there till June, so well, yeah. that doesn't really count. But, you know, if I can walk outside and not see snow... That's that's a successful birthday for me. 
if we can get some solid thunderstorms by my birthday, I'll be more than happy. Yeah, there you go. So should we start with our liquored up? Yeah, let's do it. All right. So this week is yours. Yep. I brought us a New Belgium Voodoo Ranger Juicy Haze IPA. Now, I'm going to be up front here. I am not a IPA fan for the most part. Um, however, I like the look of the bottle on this one. <laughs> it is pretty sweet. Uh, on the side of the bottle, it says, Packed with bright tropical aromas and brilliant citrusy flavors. This unfiltered IPA wraps up with a pleasantly smooth finish. So, is that why you can't see through it is because it's unfiltered? Yes. Okay. Well, well and it's a brown <laughs> bottle, but... Well, yes, but I mean, you can tell that we got haze in there. It looks a little chewy. It does, and uh, I'm going to talk as long as I can so I don't have to drink this IPA. Dude, pull the Band-Aid off, man. It's it's 7.5% by volume, which is, you know, not bad for an alcohol, but all right, let's do this. All right. Okay, first off, I've had much worse IPAs. I do enjoy, I, there is a citrus to this. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a bit of sour on the back end, which is the hops. I think I can drink this. It's it's not something I'm going to run for, Mm-mm. but if somebody hands it to me. Yeah, let's be fair. Do either one of us ever actually run unless we have to? Oh, true. So true. <laughs> I wouldn't make a special trip for it. How about that? Yeah, I wouldn't make a special trip for it. But if I was at somebody's house and they're like, you want one of these? I'd probably drink it. This uh, this one, I you could tell by the face that I made, it was a bit more hoppy than I was expecting. Yes. However, it goes away. It's got a clean finish. It's not lingering and hanging around. It's nothing that's really backing for me. Yeah. So this one here, while I wouldn't seek it out, I don't hate it. But do you get like the flavor of pine needles on the back end? A little bit. It's got a little Jenny flavor to it. Yeah. And not yeah. Jenny Weasley either. <laughs> Ew, by the way. <laughs> that was just wrong. All right, so what do you levels. think? Ah, bar. That's about where I'm at, too. I can't, I'm not going to say it's horrible. No, but I can't give it a, I can't give it a thumbs up. No, either. not on this one. But if you're an IPA fan, I think if you haven't tried this, you should probably give it a shot. Yeah, absolutely. And if anything, you'll enjoy the, the look of the bottle. It's, yeah. It is entertaining. Yeah. It's a skeleton dressed in a bomber hat with goggles and... And a Boy Scout hat over and, that. Yep, and a... Like a Hawaiian shirt. Hawaiian shirt. shirt. Yeah, kind of like a Hunter S. Thompson type thing. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, it's, it's like I said, it's a bar. It's, it's not great. It's not bad. It's worth it. Yeah. All right. So, now, next thing, which is what the one of my favorite parts every week. Oh, what would that be, sir? That would be trivia time. Oh. All right. So, trivia this week, because we're dealing with drugs. Yep. And addiction. It is kind of dealing with that. And just keep that in the back of your mind. This is kind of like a Trebek thing where the clues always have something to deal with it. Okay. All right. So, former Van Halen and current chicken foot bass player Michael Anthony has many custom-made bass guitars. One of his most famous ones is shaped like what? I'll read that one again. Former Van Halen and current chicken foot bass player Michael Anthony has many custom-made bass guitars. One of his most famous ones is shaped like what? You got me. I got a few thoughts that I'll jot down as we go along, but... Your thoughts are probably correct, and we'll find out in about 45 minutes or so. Oh, when you belch that up, it is all pine needle. (laughs) Oh, that was bad. I will try not to burp then. All right, so why don't you kick this one off? All right, I'm going to go ahead and kick this one off with a little needle in the spoon by Leonard Skinner. 
Uh, now, no. Leonard Skinner is an American rock band known for its southern rock style. They originally formed in 1964, made up of school friends Ronnie Van Zant, Bob Burns, Alex Collins, Gary Rossington, and Larry Junstrom. They first went by My Backyard and went through a couple other changes, such as the Noble Five and One Percent, before settling on Leonard Skinner, which is kind of a rip towards their high school gym teacher, who was Leonard Skinner, and kind of had like a Mr. Hand from Fast Times attitude towards the guys because they had long hair. Okay. And that was back in 1968, which was pretty huge. They were discovered by Al Cooper of Blood, Sweat, and Tears, who got them hooked up with MCA, which is where they released their first album, 1973's pronounced Leonard Skinnerd. That's peaked at number 27 on the charts and has gone double platinum. They continued touring and releasing several albums before tragedy struck in 1977, which was The Plane Crash. It claimed the lives of lead singer Ronnie Van Zant, Steve Gaines, and his older sister Cassie, who was on backing vocals, as well as three other of the crew members. The surviving members went on a Skinnerd hiatus, working on other projects, until 1987 when they came back to tour with Johnny Van Zant, Ronnie's younger brother, who sounds really much a lot like him. I mean, yeah, yeah. You can tell the difference, but it's difficult. They've continued to record and tour, announcing their farewell tour on January 25th of 2018. Uh, they've released 14 studio albums, most recently being 2012's Last of a Dying Breed, and their catalog has spawned 30 singles. Now, Needle in the Spoon, it's about heroin. You think? Yeah, I mean, that's that's one of the things I figured we'd talk about is just figure out, I mean, unless it's pretty obvious, which this one is. Right. It's about horse. It's about heroin. Yeah. Let's go ahead and dip a little into, well, no, let's not. Let's just listen to it. The song itself is off of 1974's Second Helping and is clearly about, again, heroin and its usage and the dangers of it. The singer talks about how people thought they were cool for using and how keeping up with it will kill you, ending the song stating you don't mess with the needle or the spoon. It's not a happy song by any means, and it does tell a good story and was written around the time when drug use was incredibly prevalent. Yep. Not saying it's not now, but it's it almost seems like that was the time that it was more so. And it was almost more accepted if that, for that yeah, they didn't they didn't know the effects on the body in a lot of cases. Or the long term effects. Right. I mean, they knew what it did short term and that was like woohoo. Right. But right. I mean they knew you could die from it, but that was a risk to take because it made you feel a certain way. Ooh, pine needles, you're right. Yeah. <laughs> I just showed up. Okay. I enjoy this song because it's classic Skinner. It does tell a good story. And it's straight up a drug song. Yeah, yeah. And you know, for a guy who doesn't get into the meanings of songs. It's a good story, he says. But no, you're right. It is a good story. It, and like I say, it, it sounds like classic Skinner. I mean, it's a good Southern rock song with a better message. Don't get into drugs because it's hard to get out of them. Um, you know, they lay out in the end of the the end of the song is is I think very poignant. You know, they talk like you said. They talk about don't mess with the needle or the spoon, or any trip to the moon. It'll take you away, Lord. They're gonna bury you, boy. I mean. There's, there's no hidden message there. No, no. It's not it's, like some songs where they try to mask it with something else. Like a different simile or metaphor. It's like, no, you're going to die. You're going to die. You're going to die, and you're going to die, and we're going to put you in the ground. Exactly. And then everybody's going to be unhappy, and it's all your own damn fault. Yeah. But like you said, it's a great Skinner song because, well, it's Skinner, and it's 
the classic sound. Right. So, I mean, that's really all I got to say about it. All right. So, what's your follow-up? All right. So, I'm going to go with I Want a New Drug by Huey Lewis in the News. All right. So, the lust drug is what I call it. The one that makes me feel like I do when I'm with you. You know a drug that won't do the following? Make my mouth dry. Make my eyes too red. So, they can be a little red, but well, yeah, not too I mean, red, you know. Uh, you know, feel three feet thick. I feel like that on a daily basis. <laughs> Skinny people problems. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Huey Lewis and the News is an American pop rock band based in San Francisco, California. They had a run of hit singles during the 1980s and early 1990s, eventually achieving 19 top 10 singles across the Billboard Hot 100 adult contemporary and mainstream mainstream rock charts. Their most successful album, Sports, was released in 1983. Yay, sports! <laughs> go sports, go! <laughs> go team, put the ball in the hoop, or something like that. Uh, the album, along with the uh, its video being featured on MTV, catapulted the group to worldwide fame. That expanded when the song The Power of Love was featured in the hit film Back to the Future. The Power of Love was nominated for an Academy Award and reached number one on the Billboard Hot 100 singles chart. Why don't we sample this new drug? Maybe a bad lead-in. Let's not sample. Yeah, how about not? <laughs> anyway, according to Lewis... He wrote the song in only a few minutes. I was on the way to my attorney's house, and I thought of it in the car. I pulled up and walked in. I said, Bob, give me a piece of paper. I've got to write this down. The video echoes the song's origin with Lewis waking up late, remembering he had a concert that night, and races across San Francisco using his yellow convertible, a public ferry, and a chartered helicopter to get to the concert on time. Sighting a girl twice on his way and finding her in the front row at the concert. Video features Lewis Lewis's most famous outfit, a red sports jacket and pants with a plain black t-shirt and matching sunglasses. When the theme song of the 1984 film Ghostbusters was released, Huey Lewis sued Ray Parker Jr. To, uh, for copyright infringement, claiming that Parker had stolen the melody from I Want a New Drug. Lewis had been approached to compro- compose the main theme song for the film, but had to decline because of his work on the soundtrack for Back to the Future. The two parties settled out of court. Details of the settlement, specifically that Columbia Picture paid Lewis a settlement, were confidential until 2001 when Lewis commented on the payment in an episode of VH1's Behind the Music. Parker subsequently sued Lewis for breaching confidentiality. Okay. So he got some of his money back. I guess. But, you know, it's one of these things where he's not talking about a specific drug in this case. Right. You know, he's just talking about... The feeling. The feeling, yeah, yeah. And it's actually not... I don't even know if it's a drug song. As I was doing more research into it, I'm like, he's kind of equating drug use to love or lust or... Kind of like the like the endorphin type thing. That you, right. Like the internal drug type stuff. Right. You know, and it's... I don't know. It, I don't know. What are your what are your thoughts on it? Well, and I actually echoed the same thing. It's, it's not really about drugs per se, but it's just how he wants something that would give him the same high he gets when it's with his lady friend. And it's, it's a classic 80s song. There's... It's... There's nothing more than that. It's a classic song right. here. When it comes to the, that and the Ghostbusters thing, you really kind of have to try hard to hear it. 
I've listened to him side by side many times, actually, and it's uh, you're stretching it a little bit, Huey, but I suppose, I mean, if you've got something, he, the ironic part is he got turned down from Ghostbusters. He, he declined Ghostbusters. Right. And then the guy who did it, in theory, plagiarized him. So it's like, uh, it could go either way. Now, a lot of his stuff kind of sounded alike. If you listen to a lot of oh, Huey yeah. Lewis, it was very similar. And But it is kind of a shame that he sort of fell off the face of the earth. I mean, he's done some acting gigs here and there. Like, I think he did one with Gwyneth Paltrow. You where got they, me. Where I'm they not... were singing in some duet movie. I think it might even be called Duets. Okay. But that's about it. I mean, he was in Back to the Future as one of the judges. Yeah. afraid you're just too, too loud. loud. Yeah. And he released a few pieces of music. And then occasionally when the movies use it, like American Psycho with um, Hip to be Square, I think it is. Might be. Um, when his music is used, he comes to the forefront, but then that's it. It's like he's gone, which is kind of a shame. Huey Lewis was entertaining, but he was 80s all the way. I, oh, don't, yeah, think he would, I don't think he'd survive in today's market no, except no. for the retro market. Yeah, which is huge right now. Absolutely. All right, so what do you got next? All right, for next we're going to go with a little bit of Ozzy. We got Flying High Again, which do you really even have to think about it? I mean, think about the title. But we'll talk about it anyways. John Michael Ozzy Osbourne is an English singer, songwriter, and actor, which I find it hilarious that we have to say he's an actor. Yeah. yeah. He got the nickname in elementary school, which kind of makes sense because I know a guy named Oswald that we called Ozzy. Okay. You know, he was drawn to performing at an early age, taking part in plays. He heard the Beatles at age 14 and credits She Loves You as an inspiration to be a musician. He did some odd jobs, including some time in jail before, in late 1967, he was invited by Geezer Butler to be the vocalist in Rare Breed before breaking up and reforming in the band Black Sabbath. Okay, so what did he do to go to prison or to jail? Uh, I think it was a petty theft. Okay. And his dad, to teach him a lesson, didn't post bail. Nice. And I guess his dad was a bastard, but it kind of formed him. So. Yeah, yeah. Now... He worked with them and in, in background work, worked on some solo stuff before being fired from Sabbath for substance abuse issues in 1979. Imagine that. He went on a bender but re- rebounded in he went on a bender and rebounded and released 1980's Blizzard of Oz as his debut. Wow. That is an amazing album. It is. And it for is. that to be his debut is pretty impressive. He did a bunch of other solo albums and finally reunited with Sabbath on and off while performing solo and in 1997 hooked up with them. Uh, until 2006 when he went solo again. More solo material back with his ex in 2011 until disbanding in 2017. Ozzy's most recent solo release was 2010's Scream, and he's currently working on a new album. He's kept busy with other projects, such as writing, acting, mostly voice work like Nomeo and Juliet, and here's for you, Al. He was the voice of the Guardian of Metal in 2009's Brutal Legend. Nice. And traveling with his son Jack on the History Channel TV series Ozzy and Jack's World Detour which is pretty damn hilarious. If you haven't watched it, you I haven't, it. No. It's, it's historical and it's Ozzy. It's like the Osbournes with history. Okay. It's pretty pretty entertaining. Ozzy's released 11 solo albums between 1980 and 2010, nine of which have gone gold or better with the RIAA and has spawned 41 singles. Why don't we go ahead and try Flying High again? See, that one's actually okay. Yeah. yeah I, that I, one, I think that works. 
So Flying High Again is a single off of 1981's Diary of a Madman. Is this a drug song? Sources are torn. The song is mostly written by Bob Daisley, and per him, it was inspired by a time the band was playing in Australia. He got into a conversation about drugs with a finger quotes straight person, and that's how it came to be. Ozzy, however, tells a different story. Of course he does. <laughs> Ozzy says that it's not about drug use, but rather it was inspired by his successful comeback as a solo artist after getting the boot from Sabbath when he believed his musical career was done. I can kind of buy that because he, he, re he rebounded amazingly as solo. Who knows what's true and what's not. I personally think it is a drug song as it's released around the time that Ozzy was getting blasted all the time and it was not uncommon to find him gone at any point in time. He definitely did his and other share of drugs back in the day. <laughs> I, this is it's classic Ozzy. I mean, it's his second album. Blizzard is still better in my opinion, but Diary of a Madman is still a pretty great album. Yep. I still think it's a drug song. I, I tend to agree with you. Now, I've always loved this song. Never really knew the lyrics, you know, because it's Ozzy. Well, yeah, mumble mouth himself. Yeah, exactly. So, however, while researching this song, I read the lyrics and thought. How did I not connect the dots and realize this is a song about drugs? I feel like it might be about, like, LSD or some other sort of psychotropic drug. It could be, yeah, but it'd be, because that was big in the day. Right. Um, but anything that gets you going, I mean... I suppose, but that's just kind of what it struck me as. Either way, like I said, it's still a great song. It's still Ozzy, you know, and right. it's early Ozzy, which makes it even better in most cases. It's. I find it really funny that we, we talked about him being, well, I talked about him being like a mushmouth. If you listen to him talk when he's not singing, it, it's almost unintelligible. They have to subtitle him. Right. But then if you listen to him sing, he's actually surprisingly clear. Yeah, there was – oh, God, what fast food – was it Subway did a commercial with Ozzy? Yes, I remember and the guy's that trying one. And the guy's trying to make his sub, and he's like eh, – eh, 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 eh. and then they're like, okay, so you want a turkey sub? And it's like it's like Ozzy goes there all the time, and the guy knows how to speak Ozzy. Yeah, exactly. It's almost like dentists knowing how to talk when they're doing their dental work, even yeah. though you're like, oh, 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 so how was your vacation? <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. So great song. I think we agree. Yeah. And yeah. what's your follow-up? All right, I'm going to go with a little Jimi Hendrix. All right. So, don't know if I'm coming up or down. The best I can put together, Jimi is singing about weed or ash or something of that type of drug. According to the legend and many fans and the, and the press interpret the song as referring to a psychedelic experience due to the lines such as, Purple haze all in my brain and, excuse me, will I kiss the sky? However, Hendrix and those closest to him never discussed any connection between psychedelic drugs and the song. Although Shapiro admits uh, dis that at the time to do so would have been professional suicide. Chandler, who claimed he was present when Hendrix wrote it, later denied suggestions that Hendrix did so while under the influence of psychedelics. Commenting on the lyrics, Shadwick concludes the music was allowed to tell the larger story. Poised effectively between the twin intoxicants of drugs and desire, they could be interpreted to the listener's tastes. In concert, Hendrix sometimes substituted lyrics for the comic effect. Excuse me, while I kiss the sky was rendered, excuse me, while I kiss this guy, while just gesturing towards uh, Mitchell. Excuse me, while I kiss that policeman at a near riot in, in Los Angeles. Or excuse me, while I fuck the sky during a downpour in Seattle. So... Let's get into the haze. Yeah, 
So James Marshall Jimi Hendrix was an American rock guitarist, singer, and songwriter. Although his mainstream career spanned only four years, every time I read that, it's like, that's what? it. Yeah, exactly. It's like four years. And if correct me if I'm wrong, but wasn't his official name like the Jimi Hendrix Experience? That was the name of the band. Yes. Right. Right. right yep. Um, he is widely regarded as one of the most influential electric guitarists in the history of popular music and one of the most celebrated musicians of the 20th century. The Rock and Roll Hall of Fame describes him as, quote, arguably the greatest instrumentalist in the history of rock music, unquote. Wow. Not that I argue with them, but that's a hell of a statement. Yeah, it is. So, the world's highest paid performer, he headlined the Woodstock Festival in 1969 and the Isle of Wight Festival in 1970 before his accidental death from barbiturate-related asphyxiation on September 18, 1970, at the age of... 27. 27. So, I don't know. This song is, as far as I'm concerned, it's it's psychedelia. Yeah, It really is. It's a great song. Love the song. It's got um, one of the most well-known riffs ever. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And it's just one of those songs that every time I've ever heard it, I mean, from little on, it's like, this is about something. Something, Yeah. You know, something that's not necessarily, you know, when you're little, it's like, this is about something, but you don't really know what it is. But as you get older, you're like, oh, oh yeah, I see what you like, did there. It's like, it's like smoke on the water. Well, yeah, but smoke on the water actually is based on real events. Like legit, like there was like a fire at Montreux in Switzerland and everything right. else. But I mean, yeah, you wouldn't know that as a kid. You only look at it because, you know, right. you read it. But now... <sighs> Hendrix always stated this song was not about drugs, but rather about a dream he had where he was lost at sea and was saved by his faith in Jesus. Yep, Pur- I read that as well. Purple Jesus. Yep. What, so he, what, Prince or Kanye? No, he was just high and saw Jesus yeah. as purple. So coupled with the fact that his explanation has changed many times depending on when you talk to him and the fact that he was no stranger to being high, I find it hard to believe this has nothing to do with an acid trip. Yeah. So I'm going to say, yeah, no, this is still a drug song. Yeah. No, so. I'll argue with you about what the drug is. But, you know, yeah, it's definitely a drug song. All right. And so that's – but it's good. You're right. It's a good song, entertaining, um, one of his greatest hits. Yeah. So so, what do you got next? All right. Well, I've got a song that you're going to probably be a little surprised. It's called There She Goes by the Laws. I was really surprised till I read the lyrics. Right. And then <laughs> – so – the Laws were an English rock band that formed in 1983 by Mike Badger. Uh, the name apparently came to him in a dream since it had a musical collect, um, a musical connection, you know, do, re, mi, fa, sol, la, and sounded like someone with his English dialect saying lads, so they ran with it. Okay. All right. They mainly started out as, finger quote, art house, which I read as shitty, music and released their first single which was way out in 1987, where it maxed at 86 on the UK charts. Their next single, There She Goes, was in 1988 and is included on their 1990 debut album, self-titled The Laws, which is their only studio album. They continued to play, but ended up breaking up in 1992. They got got back together in 94 for one year, then broke up again. Since then, they've done one-shots and performed under different names such as Lee Rude and Velcro Underpants. Velcro underpants. I yeah, like that. That's that's awesome. They're not really active, but they, because they only come together occasionally, but I, I, one album. So they kind of did their one-hit wonder, one-shot type thing. They blew their load on one shot. Pretty much, yeah. So let's go ahead and watch her go by as there she goes. 
goes, was co-written by Lee Mavers and John Byrne, and as previously mentioned, was an 88 single and 1990 on the album. It sounds like a love song that's devoted to a girl, but all is not really what it seems. Yes, it's a love song, but the devotion really is an addiction to a substance that the singer is hooked on. It's seemingly about heroin racing through my brain, pulsing through my veins. This is another song that has conflicting meanings. The, base, the band's bassist John Power claims not to know and doesn't want to know what it's about. Red flag number one. Yeah, that sounds like I plead the fifth. Right. Ex-guitarist Paul Hemmings denied it as a rumor. Finally, in an interview, co-songwriter Mavers admits to trying heroin in 1990 before the song was written, um, because it was recorded in 1988. I don't know if I'd buy that, though, because it's easy to take notes and write about something later on. An example of this was with the line, with your bitch slap rapping and your cocaine tongue, you get nothing done. That appeared as the liner notes in 1987's Appetite for Destruction. And then the actual line was part of a song, You Could Be Mine, off of 1991's Use Your Illusion 2. I think he's trying to cover his ass. I really quite, do. Quite possibly, yeah. I think it's a heroin song. All so. right. So it's a good little ditty about a drugs, it seems, I guess. Um, I always thought the song was about a girl. Seems. I think everyone did. It's actually about many types of drugs. When I was looking at the lyrics, I thought it kind of, because he talks about blow. And he talks about, you know, obviously the, the running through his brain and things like that. Um, the singer is using the drugs to help him heal the pain, which we all know it doesn't work. It just doesn't. No. Drugs just amplify it. You may think the pain is gone, but it's just there in a different way. And we'll, actually one of my songs later on, we'll get to that. Yeah, I'm sure we will. So I, I enjoy the song. I'm going to look at it differently from now on. But you can still see it as a love song, too, though. You can. I mean, yeah. They did it in the movie uh, So I Married an Axe with Mike Myers. Okay. Uh, back in the 90s, I think it was. And it was when the lady love was walking by. It's like, oh, such a nice song. <laughs> and then you look at it, it's like, oh, wow, wait, whoa. Yeah. So what do you got next? Okay, up next I got Rainy Day Woman by Bob Dylan. Everybody must get stoned. These mythical words of Bob Dylan. Rainy Day Woman is a song by, well, Bob Dylan. It's the opening track of his 1966 album, Blonde on Blonde. That has completely different questions in my mind right now. <laughs> that does. It was initially released as a single in April 1966, reaching number seven in the UK and number two on the US chart. Rainy Day Woman, recorded in the Nashville studio of Columbia Records, features a raucous ba brass band backing track. The song, sound drunk. Yeah, a little bit. The song's title does not appear anywhere in the lyrics, and there has been much debate over the meaning of the recurrent chorus, Everybody Must Get Stoned. This has made the song controversial, being labeled by some commentators as a quote-unquote drug song. Now, Rainy Day Woman is slang for a spliff or a joint, so I can see where the commentators came up with the idea. But in the meantime, let's check out Rainy Day Woman. They'll stone you just like they said they would They'll stone you when you're trying to go home They'll stone you when you're there all alone But I would not feel so all alone Everybody must get stoned So Bob Dylan, born Robert Allen Zimmerman 
is an American singer, songwriter, author, and painter who has been an influential figure in popular music and culture for more than five decades. Much of his most celebrated work dates from the 1960s, when he became a reluctant voice of a generation, with songs such as Blown in the Wind and The Times They Are Changing. That became anthems for the civil rights movement and anti-war movement. In 1965, he controversially abandoned his early fan base in the American folk music revival, recording a six-minute single, Like a Rolling Stone, which enlarged the scope of popular music. Dylan's lyrics incorporate a wide range of political, social, philosophical, and literary influences. They defined existing pop music conventions and appealed to the, blood, the burgeoning counterculture. Initially inspired by the performances of Little Richard and the songwriting of Woody Guthrie, Robert Johnson, and Hank Williams, Dylan has amplified and personalized music genres. Okay, let's get Dylan out of the way. What can you say about Dylan? The man's an icon. But he can't carry a tune to save his life. Well, he can't anymore. He couldn't back then. Well, but it was very folksy. Well, it doesn't matter. I mean, I can I can call I can try to sing and sound like shit and claim I'm folksy too. <laughs> no, and actually, didn't he win a Nobel Prize recently? He did. But then um, he didn't accept it right away, and then they had to track right. him down. He like went into hiding. Yeah, it was like he he won the one in literature. I want to say. I think so. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, Dylan, so he, he's, he's a, an icon. He's an icon as... that was put into every goddamn Vietnam War movie ever. Yeah. Because he was such an influence on counterculture at the time it, it is why. But anyway, the song itself, it's a cute little song. It's a karaoke song. Absolutely. It is a karaoke song because that's what it sounds like people who are singing are doing. They're a bunch of drunks in a bar, <laughs> barely playing instruments. And a tambourine and singing. That's what I read out of it. You know, you're not too far off, really. <laughs> you know, I always want to, when we when we talk about people like this, when we talk about, you know, the Bob Dylans of, of the music industry, there's a part of you, a part of me anyway, as a music lover that wants to keep that authenticity to it. Mm-hmm. But then there is the reality of the fact that the guy can only partially sing. He can play harmonica like a son of a bitch. Yeah, though. yeah, absolutely. But it, it's not so much his music as his influence. You know, right. it might be it might be the same argument you would give me for the Beatles. It's not so much their music because your music you're kind of like blah on, but you can't discount the the influence they had on music overall. Oh no, not at all. You can't. That that's an argument that you'd be foolish to try to make. Right. So anyway, what are your thoughts on Rainy Day Woman? All right, so Dylan claims the song was about stoning in Islamic states. Yep. I'm sure you read that one too. I did. The title comes from when he met two women who walked into the recording studio on a rainy day and guessed their ages of 12 and 35 accurately. I'm calling bullshit on that. That is the most (laughs) convoluted answer I think I've ever heard. He claims that he'd never write a drug song. The title seems oddly specific, though. Considering the fact that 12 times 35 equals 420, which is a well-known toke time, apparently. Yeah. And the fact the lyrics don't have a damn thing to do with Islamic experience or anything else. Right. I don't buy his story. I think he's full of crap. I think it's a drug song. I'm, I got to agree with you there. And like I said, I think it's, it's, it's a weed song. I mean, Rainy Day Woman is street parlance for a joint. Which so. I found out after researching the song. I did as well, and I'm not going to sit here and lie. Back in the day, I might have smoked a little weed, but I never called it a rainy day woman. No, no, but then again, you were also born in, what, like the 70s as opposed to living in the 60s? Yeah, absolutely. So, 
The times were changing. Ah, <laughs> nice, nice play on that. Now let's see you transition into something even I, better. Well, I've got something to tell you tonight, tonight, tonight. Uh, and then by uh, let me tell you something about that song. Mm-hmm. I had no idea what the song was about until you read about it. Until I read about it. Yep, I don't think anybody did really. So we've got Genesis was an English rock band that formed in 1967 of Peter Gabriel. Tony Banks, Anthony Phillips, Mike Rutherford, who would later helm Mike and the Mechanics, okay. and Chris Stewart. They met at Charterhouse School, a private school in Godalming, Surrey. Stupid names. Um, but then again, they probably think the same thing about our Indian names that we have, like in Wisconsin. Yeah, yeah. As an example. They're like Menominee, me, stupid me. bastards. Yeah, or, or Shawamigan. Wakisco. Or... Yeah. I just drove by that the other day, and I'm like, there's a name. Yep, yep. So all the members were in two separate bands that when they broke up, they got together and in time released their first album, 1969's From Genesis to Revelation. A little bit of a Bible reference there. You think? Just a tick. And it peaked at number 170 on the U.S. charts. Top 200, baby. Yeah. Yeah. Now, more recording and time passed and they needed a new drummer. So guess who they picked up? I know who they picked up, but why don't you tell us? Phil Collins. Yeah, Mr. Collins. Yeah. The new lineup kept recording and releasing together until 1975 when Peter Gabriel left to work on his own solo material. This opened the door to Collins taking lead on vocals. They were going gold mostly, but shortly after the event started going platinum. It wasn't to be forever, however, as Collins left Genesis to focus on his solo career. Yeah, he should have stayed with Genesis. And other, and other jazz side products in 1986 stating, Having been with Genesis for 25 years, I felt it time to change my direction in musical life. For me now, it will be music for movies, some jazz products, projects, and of course my solo career. I wish the guys in Genesis all the very best in their future. We remain the best of friends. I'm going to say, uh, bullshit. You know, maybe they do. Yeah, perhaps. So it sounds like it was amicable. Uh, Banks and Rutherford kept Genesis going, but it was harder because Collins was kind of a motivational go-between. The band took a brief hiatus in 98, but then in 2006 came back together for the Turn It On Again tour reuniting with Collins for the first time in years. Despite Collins making it clear that he couldn't medically drum anymore, he retired from the industry. He and the rest of the band have not concretely said a reunion would be out of the picture and that it would never happen, but he did mention it was unlikely. In 2015, however, he mentioned he was ending his retirement and said a reunion with Banks and Rutherford would be possible, which, big shock, Banks is all about. Genesis, throughout their incarnations, have released 15 studio albums, 10 of which have gone gold or better in the U.S., and spawned 42 singles and eight box sets. Eight, that's huge. That's a lot of damn box sets. I don't think. I don't even think Bon Jovi has that many box sets. I don't think the Beatles have that many box sets. No. So, and let's go ahead and take a quick listen to tonight, 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 right now, now, now. Okay, okay, okay. Had to have the last word in there, didn't you? Don't I usually? You son of a bitch. So, hey, hey, don't you talk <laughs> about my mother that way. <laughs> so tonight, times three, was a single off 1986 Invisible Touch. When Ooh. I mentioned Yeah, yeah. When I mentioned the song, in general, the consensus was, wait, what? 
and thought it was too until I dug a little deeper. Apparently, it is about the meeting with a Coke dealer. It speaks about the symptoms of a high as well as the relief of knowing that tonight's the night the singer will be getting his fix. The lyrics definitely show signs of addiction in the use in the phrase coming down and the monkey like a load on your back that you can't see. It also talks about the drug deal and situation. I've got some money in my pocket ready to burn. I don't know where I got it, but I got to get it to you, which points out many times how addicts will get money however they can to pay for their next hit. Bet you're not going to listen to this song the same way in the future. I know I won't. No, absolutely not. I I like this song. Based on the lyrics, I would have never guessed it was a song about meeting with your cocaine dealer, which you already said. But that's what it's about, I guess. I also found that Michelob Beer used this song for an ad campaign because, in the, in, the, in the words of what I read, the executives saw the name of it and kind of knew what the, the um, chorus was, mm-hmm. and so they picked the song, never realizing that it was actually about cocaine. And not, you know, just the night out on the town. So, great song, bad message. I'd agree. So, so what do you got next? All right, up next, I have $20 Nosebleed by Fall Out Boy. Well, I'll give you one for free. Hey, hey, hey. <laughs> That's not very nice. <laughs> Bassist and lyricist Pete Wentz told MTV News that this tune, quote, is the most political yet least lucid and self-aware Fall Out Boy song to date. Unquote. He added cryptically, quote, it centers on the idea of benzedrine and a revolving typewriter paper on the beats musically. The lyrics are about a war in the desert in a far off time, but maybe not. Unquote. What? You non-committal son of a bitch. <laughs> right? In a video interview, Wentz added that to the mystery regarding the interpretation of the song's lyrics, when he told the new Musical Express that this track is about thin air up in Colorado, I think, and that's where you you get nosebleeds, right? If you could see me right now, I've got my <laughs> the bridge of my nose pinched with my eyes all squinched down because my head is hurting trying to make sense of what this retard's trying to say. <laughs> it's, it's insane. So Brendan Yuri from Panic at the Disco plays keyboards and contributes guest vocals on the track. I didn't say that right. It's Panic! At the disco. Oh, I'm sorry. Remember? Yes. This was originally titled Mr. Benzedrine. Benzedrine. Since Benzedrine is a drug that was often taken nasally by its recreational users, it stands to reason that the title, $20 Nosebleed, is a reference to the to an effect of Benzedrine. Back when Benzedrine was a popular drug, it may have cost $20 to purchase enough to get someone high. And once you used it, it could give you a nosebleed. Yeah. Now, let's see if we can get a $20 nosebleed. You know, I already, I already offered thought, to give you one for free. You know, on second thought, after reading the way this guy talks, I don't think I want a $20 nosebleed because it, it obviously causes brain, brain damage. Pro- brain problems, right. So anyway, uh, Fall Out Boy is an American rock band formed in Wilmette, Illinois, a suburb of Chicago, in 2001. The band consists of lead vocalist and rhythm guitarist Patrick Stump, bassist Pete Wentz, lead guitarist Joe Troman, 
and drummer Andy Hurley. The band originated from Chicago's hardcore punk scene, with which all members were involved at one point. The group was formed by Wentz and Troman as a pop-punk side project of the members' respective hardcore bands, and Stump joined shortly thereafter. The group went through a succession of drummers before landing Hurley and recording the group's debut album, Take This to Your Grave, 2003. The album became an underground success and helped the band gain a dedicated fan base through heavy touring, as well as some moderate commercial success. Take This to Your Grave has commonly been cited as an influential blueprint for pop-punk music in the 2000s. And here, silly me, I thought it was Green Day. Yeah, a better band. A much better band. Now, the song's not horrible, no, but it's not... It's not like a later <laughs> one that you have on your list. No, it's it's not horrible, but it's not great either. It's all right. Um, what do you think? They mentioned benzodrine, which is known as an uh, ADD drug. It's um, amphetamine that basically, they to slow you down, they speed you up. Yeah, but it has something to do with the chemical imbalances that cause ADD. Right, right. Now, they mention it multiple times, but Wentz won't give a straight answer of what the hell the song's about. To me, denial or avoidance is usually a sign that we're right on. Right, and it was originally um, titled Mr. Benzendream, or Benzendream. Mm-hmm. So, uh... You know, it's not really about the snortable stuff, which is what the title would apply, imply, because right. usually a $20 nosebleed, you think of getting a crack rock or a hit a Coke or something like that. But at the same time... I don't know. I think he's being non-committal to try to be mysterious, but he just sounded like a dick. I would agree. All right. So a dick it is. All right. So what do you got next, man? All right. We're going to go to take a little journey to the center of the mind by, by the Amboy Dukes. The Amboy Dukes were an American rock band formed in 1964 by lead guitarist Ted Nugent. Uh-huh. Nugent was in a band called The Lords, L-O-U-R-D-S, when he, featured, when he and future lead vocalist of the Dukes, John Drake. They played together until Nugent's family moved to Chicago, where the two founded the Amboy Dukes. They released their first studio album, the self-titled The Amboy Dukes, in 1967, where it peaked at number 183 on the U.S. charts. Crack 200! Woo! Top 200! There you go. The band continued to record and tour, having a different lineup with each subsequent album release. Then, in 1971, due to Nugent being the only remaining member, they were renamed Ted Nugent and the Amboy Dukes. Finally, in 1975, the band transitioned to being Nugent's backing band and just stopped using Amboy Dukes altogether rather than just staying on as a solo artist. The original Amboy Dukes did reunite in 2009 for a one-off performance at the Detroit Music Awards where they were recognized for their contributions to rock, receiving a Distinguished Achievement Award, I believe it is, because I put Disguised, but I don't think that's right. No, probably not. A Disguised Achievement. We're not sure if it really is or not. So you achieve something, exactly. but we're not going to tell you what. Now, Ted Nugent has continued to tour and perform since then. He was part of their supergroup Damn Yankees for a time in the late 80s to the mid-90s and then went solo again. His most recent release was 2014's Shut Up and Jam. Since inception, the Amboy Dukes have released seven studio albums, four of which charted, maxing out at 74, and those albums spawned seven singles. The highest charting was this song at 19, at 16, I'm sorry. Let's go ahead and before we talk about it, take a little journey to the center of your mind. The pleasures of the journey to the center of the mind. Come along if you care. Come along if you dare. Take a ride to the 
nobody wants to go there. Yeah, I get lost. I get lost sometimes. Yeah. So Journey to the Center of the Mind is a Steve Farmer and Ted Nugent written song that was released on a 1968 album of the same name. The song's lyrics and psychedelic sound refer to a trip while on a mind-altering substance such as LSD. Farmer wrote the song about drugs, but Nugent denies its association, thinking it was just about looking inside oneself. As vehemently anti-drug as once as one thought, he was so far removed that he just didn't know about the drug culture, so he missed out on the references and interpreted it completely different. That could be, coupled with the fact that the main guy was an anti-drug and didn't care for the lifestyle, it would make sense the rest of the band wouldn't exactly rush out and point it out to him. It's a good trippy song. It really is. It's got a good, like, kind of that reverb to it that just yeah. kind of makes you think that you are on a trip of some sort. Right, right. I enjoy it. I thoroughly enjoy the song, actually. Now, I have to be honest. I had never heard this song before doing this. I've heard of the Amboy Dukes before, but I had never heard of this song. So, I was not surprised when I read the lyrics that it's a song about psychedelic drugs. <laughs> How Uncle Teddy missed that? I, I understand. Maybe, maybe plausible deniability? Could very well be. And, I mean, I understand being so out of it that you wouldn't understand it if it was, like, put right up in your face. But you got to really – just think about sit down one day. You, if you're on the toilet, you look at the lyrics, you know, you got nothing better to read, and you're like, holy right. shit, it's a drug song. Right. But anyway, so the Amboy Dukes are not a bad band. And, of course, the song is good. It's Like you said, it's a, it's a nice little trippy song. Um. It reminds me a lot of, you know, 60s Fair when listening to it. It's very much, you know, music of that time. So that's really all I have to say about it. I mean, being that it's, that it's a song that I only heard like twice now because, <laughs> you know, listening to it. But it, it, I enjoyed it for what it is. Uh, that's And that's really all it was there for. So what do you got next? I think up next we are going to go with Mr. Brownstone. Yeah, I'm a little surprised you didn't save that one for last. I guess. Now, you, you say that a lot, but there, there's usually a method to my madness. There there typically is, and usually it's with mine as well. But uh, Mr. Brownstone is a song by the American rock band Guns N' Roses, featured on their debut studio album, Appetite for Destruction. Slash relates that the song was begun by him and Izzy Stradlin while they were at Stradlin and his girlfriend Desi Kraft's apartment. He states that they were sitting around complaining about being heroin addicts, and they started improvising lyrics and music. Brownstone is a slang term for heroin. Man, it sucks being an addict. <laughs> Pass the needle. Yeah. I, I mean, you know, the lyrics make a clear reference to the to the tolerance that the drug causes in the verse that says, I used to do a little, but a little wouldn't do it, so the little got more and more. I just keep trying to get a little better, so a little better than before. When they had the, all the, the lyrics all together, with some help from Kraft, they wrote it down on the back of a grocery bag and brought it to Axl Rose. There is the medium for writing songs, man. Grocery bags. Yeah, or napkins. Well, napkins, yeah. So Slash said the lyrics describe a typical day in the life of Slash and Stradlin. He also states that it was the first song the band wrote after being signed by Geffen Records. So let's visit Mr. Brownstone. So, 
Guns N' Roses' debut album, Appetite for Destruction, was released July 21st, 1987. The album underwent an artwork change after the original cover designed by Robert Williams, which depicted a surrealist scene in which a dagger-toothed monster vengefully attacks a robot racist, was deemed too controversial. So... Wasn't that the inside art, though? Yeah, it was, it was the insert art. Because it had, yeah. like, a, like, a woman, like, all raped and everything? All tied up and raped, and, yeah. yeah, yeah, that was the inside artwork, yep. So, the band stated the original artwork was a symbolic social statement with the robot representing the industrial system that's raping and polluting our environment. That's pretty deep. Especially I think it's bullshit, too. It's, it's something that they came up with now, you know, kind of thing. Let's see, what can we screw with people saying? Let's see, environment, okay, that's, yeah, a, yeah. Hot, that's a hot topic. And, <laughs> and, 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 and rape and robots, yeah, that's a hot topic. They're like, they're like they're t- t- taking political talking points. It's, it's <laughs> like them playing games of cards against humanity and making that their statement or something. Right. So the revised cover was done by Andy Engel, based on a design by tattoo artist Billy White Jr., who had designed the artwork for a tattoo Rose had acquired the previous year. The artwork featured the five band members' skulls layered on a cross. Of course, that's the iconic cover. That's the one everybody knows. Right, right. And I honestly think I think it, it would have not sold as well because of it. If they would have had the other picture on the cover, it would have sold. Quite possibly, well. yeah. Even if they like put a sticker over it, because remember that's what they used to do? Yeah. They, if they wanted something edited, they would just put a, like, a price sticker or some shit right, over it. Right, right, right. Because the girl's boobs were hanging out, I think, Yeah. in the original picture. So they would have had like a parental lyrics sticker mm-hmm. or something there. But yeah. So, this is a great song. Oh, yeah. I, I love this song. I mean, the bass, the bass line in this song is amazing. Um, Axel's vocals for this is probably perfect. I love the fact that he stays in his low register. He yes. doesn't get screechy. He doesn't get screechy. I think it, it works for the song perfectly. I would agree with you on this one. So, that's my thoughts. What do you, what do you think? So, a lot of what I have is kind of a parroting of what you had mentioned you know izzy and slash pendant about heroin and the legit need to get more and more to get high and how it changes your life um not veiled at all per slash it's biographical on a day in the lives of both of the guys you know used to get up on time now i get up whenever okay we used to go on stage at seven now we get on stage at like nine yeah exactly. which is which is even more ironic because i don't know how axel was in the early days he never went on stage on time ever I mean, it's, you're lucky if he showed up, period. Well, yeah, there was that. So the hilarious part about this whole thing was that Axel, it was Axel who threatened to leave the band if Slash didn't get clean. Talk about a pot and a frickin' kettle right there. Well, yes and no. Axel has never been into the drugs the way the other guys were. Well, not the way the other ones were, but at the same time, it's like if Axel needs to give you, tell you to get your shit together, you are <laughs> fucked. Yeah, yeah. Seriously. I mean, and that's, I mean, that's hilarious. There was a hilarious. few times, I mean... I don't know if you've read the the um, unauthorized biography or whatever. No. But I mean, there were a couple times where they there was one time they found um, Slash so strung out that he was cold and blue, and somehow he didn't die. But but he's not Nikki Six who had to bring be brought back how many times? Well, yeah, but he's got a pacemaker actually. Nikki Six. No Slash. Really? Oh yeah. Huh. Yeah. Sometime. I want to say right in the middle of the Use Your Illusion tour kind of thing. He had a bunch of heart issues. So when the tour was over, they went in and they gave him a pacemaker. Oh, Saul. (laughs) Saul Hudson. (laughs) Yep, yep. So, all right, man, what do you got next? All right, we got another um, another classic band here. We've got a little Megadeth for you. We've got Poison Was the Cure by 
Megadeth. Now, Megadeth is a heavy metal band that formed in 1983 of Dave Mustaine, David Elfson, Greg, uh, what is that, Hand, Hand of it? Sure. Sure. Shortly after Mustaine was fired from Metallica, so we have them to thank for the awesomeness that is Megadeth. Uh, they played together and recruited Gar Samuelson, signed to the label, and released their debut album, 1985, Killing Is My Business, and Business Is Good. <laughs> they have always had great album titles. Yeah. Which didn't do much to get their foot, but it did get their foot in the door. They continued recording under pressure to deliver, released their first platinum effort, 1986's Peace Sells, But Who's Buying? That finally charted, maxing at 76 on the U.S. chart, and surprisingly 182 in Japan. Of all places. Yeah. That was the kickstart that they needed to make it big. Of their next seven albums, six of which went gold, at least, all but the seventh actually went platinum. That's impressive. Yeah, it is. Yeah. Um, but then there was the shakeup. Dave Mustaine was hospitalized for a kidney stone, and in giving him pain drugs, it pushed him into a relapse. He knew he knew it and checked himself into rehab, which was fantastic. And it was in the treatment center where, strangely, he was injured and suffered nerve damage to his left arm that left him unable to hold anything or even make a fist with that hand. So, wow. Yeah. He disbanded Megadeth in 2002 as he couldn't play guitar anymore, but continued with physical therapy to get back going. In 2004, he went back on his solo project, but due to label constraints, he had to release the new solo stuff as a new Megadeth album, and just like that, Megadeth was back, and they were touring. They're still technically active, their most recently stuff being 2016's Dystopia, and per Dave Mustaine in a November 2017 interview, the band is going back to the studio at the end of the year to work on new material for their 16th album. Megadeth has currently released 15 studio albums, seven of which have gone gold or better while spawning 47 singles. Let's go ahead and taste, take a little sample of that poison that's the cure. Yeah, I know we said we were going to sample again, so that maybe is a poor choice of words, but fuck it, it's too late. So <laughs> It's getting late, man! <laughs> yeah, so Poison Was the Cure is a single off 1990's Rust in Peace album. It's straight up about heroin and Dave Mustaine's addiction to it. Like most addicts, Dave Mustaine thought that drugs were the answer to whatever ailed him. Regarding the song, he stated, It's about my romance with chemical abuse and how I felt the actual poison was the cure to my problems. Done deal. I mean, there's nothing veiled about it. It's it's a drug song, period, and yeah. a damn good one at that. Now, honestly, I'm not a huge Megadeth fan. However, they do have one song, and I can't think of the name of it right now. But it's Dave Mustaine is in a, I want to say a straitjacket, like in a like in an asylum or something in the video, and he starts off being it's like, hello, Dave. Hello, me. It's me again. Yeah. Sweating bullets. Sweating bullets. Okay. I love that song. Hello, me. It's me again. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So they have a few songs I like. Like I said, yeah, this does not make that list. It's this is really really heavy thrash metal. Okay. It's like old Metallica. Yes, yes. Um, I understand it's about Dave Mustaine and his battle with heroin, but I don't know. It, it's good for what it is. It tells a story. It tells you it, – it's a story of, uh, of learning or can be one that you can learn from, mm -hmm. but not my style. I just it – was, it was meh at best for me. 
But it's still a drug song. You can agree with that. Oh, yeah, absolutely. All right, all right. Absolutely. All right, all right, all right. So why don't you... Look who's here! <laughs> so why don't you go ahead and give us number 12. All right, so number 12, I'm going to do Na Na Na, and then there's a lot more Na Na's in a, uh, in, uh, by My Chemical Romance. Drugs, give me drugs, give me drugs. I don't need them, but I'll sell what you got, take the cash, and I'll keep it. So according to lead vocalist Gerard Way, the band has struggled with the departure of drummer Bob Breyer and was dissatisfied with the progress of the secessions for their fourth studio album until the recording of Na Na Na. A breakthrough was achieved once the chord progression for the songs were in place, with Way explaining, That's the moment where we said, this song challenges everything. We started over right now. We're starting over with producer Rob Cavello, and we're doing it now. Everything up to this point had felt like they had been in this kind of stasis, and as an artist, stasis equals death. So it was so bad, the vibe wasn't good, and then Nana happened. And then, all of a sudden, there was this real big intensity intensity underneath us, and it was the, all the momentum we needed to dig deep and record another album. So let's take a listen. So in September, a trailer video was uploaded to My Chemical Romance's official YouTube page entitled Art is a Weapon, which announced the title of the album, Danger Days, The True Lives of the Fabulous Killjoys. The video featured the band wearing strangely colored outfits and battling unusual characters in the desert surrounding, and featuring a sample of the music from the song, Na Na Na. Notable comic book author and the band's personal friend, Grant Morrison, makes a special appearance in the role of an enemy and leader of the band masked characters on september 22nd 2010 the band premiered their song na 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 on zane lowe's bbc radio one show and los angeles based radio station kroq fm the album was released on november 22nd 2010 now i don't talk about drugs a lot in here because it's a portion of the song the entire song is not about drugs um i'm not sure what the entire song is about but there is the whole verse on, you know, basically drugs. And My Chemical Romance was formed by a bunch of guys who went through rehab together, which is thus the name of the band. But what are your thoughts on it? Well, I'm going to put this out here that I hated this song. Okay. Um, now, the song itself mentions drugs saying gimme, gimme, but then says I don't need them, but I'll sell them. I don't really buy this being a drug song. I mean, it mentions it, but that's pretty much it. Now... Gerard Way had an interview with The Sun and said, It's intentionally dumb. It's about having a good time and not being trapped in a fashion or genre. Well, guess what, Gerard? You're right about the first sentiment. It is intentionally dumb. (laughs) Did not care for it. Okay, fair enough. Let's move on. And don't think it's a drug song. But moving on. I got my last one as being Master of Puppets by Metallica. So we got our last two ones being Thrash. Yep. Metallica is an American heavy metal band that formed in 1981 of Lars Ulrich and James Hetfield. Large put Lars put an ad in the paper, the Recycler, stating drummer looking for other metal musicians to jam with. Yeah, I hate to interrupt you here, but didn't you tell me once that Lars Ulrich is your favorite person on the planet Earth? Oh yeah, absolutely. He's just it's the he's the bee's knees. Oh okay, mm-hmm. fair enough. So now Tigers of Pantang, Diamond Head, and Iron Maiden. That's part of the ad as well. 
James showed up, as did Hugh Tanner of Leather Charm. What a name, Leather Leather Charm. And Metallica was born. Lars put another ad in the paper for a lead guitarist, and Dave Mustaine was recruited partially because of his expensive equipment. So they didn't. <laughs> it wasn't his skills; it was the fact that he had shit. Yeah, he had nice stuff. Exactly. Then Cliff Burton, and they had their first lineup. Just before releasing their first album in 1983, titled "Metal Up Your Ass," which was the original title. That sounds painful. Which, due to distribution refusers, or due to distributors refusing to release the title, got renamed "Kill 'Em All." which is what you probably knew it as. Yep. Dave Mustaine was fired for drug and alcohol abuse as well as for being a violent douchebag. Within a day of that, they replaced him with Kirk Hammett. Within a day. Wow, no murdering period on that one, are they? Yeah, no, they were like, get the fuck up. Pretty hey, much. welcome new guy. Now, needless to say, he was pissed, but he channeled that emotion to form rival band Megadeth, which is one of the, I think it's the top four thrash bands that started it all. Yeah, it was like, what is it, Anthrax, Megadeth? I, yeah, I think I have that later. Okay. Um, I think, I don't know, we'll see. Um, meanwhile, Metallica kept on with the heavy thrash metal style touring before tragedy struck. Another band with tragedy. Yeah. Cliff Burton was killed in a bus accident, and Jason Newstead joined to fill in for but never replace Cliff Burton. I guess the bus landed on him. How do you manage that one? Uh, he was thrown out of it, and it rolled on him. It was pretty gross. Yeah, that sounds bad. They continued recording and releasing albums to solid success before 2001. Newstead left the band for... Finger quotes, private and personal reasons. Yet later in Playboy, he interviewed, reveals, saying he wanted to release material on his own side project, uh, Echo Brain. Uh, James Hetfield said, was against it, saying, when someone does a side project, it takes away from the strength of Metallica. So that okay. kinda, sounds kind of fascist. A little bit. Um, and actually even wrote, sounds a little Nazi-ish. And when, News, and when Jason Newstead called him out on it, reminding him that he lent his voice on a song used for the South Park movie, The Little Boy, You're Going to Hell song, yeah. and appeared on two Corrosion of Conformity albums, James Hetfield replied, my name is not on those records, I'm not trying to sell them. Fair argument, I suppose. Uh, it still sounds kind of douchey. It, it absolutely does. Now, producer Bob Rock played bass until Robert Trujillo was recruited. They've continued to tour, even headlining with Megadeth, apparently they made up, and released more albums as recently as 2016's Hardwired to Self-Destruct. Since inception, Metallica has released 10 studio albums, all of which have gone platinum. Um, by the RIA, 1991's Black Album did the best at 16 times platinum, which doesn't surprise me because Metallica's Black Album is fucking amazing. It is, it is. It spawned 30, they've spawned 39 singles. Well, let's go ahead and sit back and talk to our master. Well, maybe not my master. But, no, nor mine, but... <laughs> all right. So, Master of Puppets was co-written by Burton, Hammett, and Hetfield, and Ulrich. It's a single released on the 1986 album of the same name, which is another amazing album. It's simply about a drug, like heroin or cocaine, running through one's body and ruling their life. James Hetfield confirmed this by stating it's how drugs change things, so that instead of you controlling what you're taking and doing, it's the drugs controlling you. It's simple, it's damning, and it's a drug song. A great drug song, no less, but it's still a great. It's still a drug song. 
What are your thoughts? So it's got a classic Metallica sound. Driving guitars, heavy drums. And the song is basically about how you get into drugs and they control you. Become your master. So it's a thinly veiled, I want to say, anti-drug song, mm-hmm. uh, in my opinion. I, I really do like the song. Uh, you know, it's earlier Metallica than I normally listen to, but I still really do like it. You know, and they had a big – there was kind of a military-ish type thing because they had like um, like Battery and um, like one was off of Van Justice for All. But this one also with – the album cover had like the uh, marionette strings into right. the graves with the white crosses on it. So it was it was kind of militaristic at the same time as the drug veiled references. Uh-huh. Great song, excellent. I mean, just the al- the whole album is amazing. And you're right, it could be an anti drug song, um, or just a telling what drug does. But either way, we can both agree it's a great song that has drug connotations. Oh, absolutely. So what are you going to finish it off with? Well, Mary Jane's Last Dance by Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers. All right. So Mary Jane's Last Dance is a song written by Tom Petty and recorded by American rock band Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers. It was recorded on July 22, 1993, while Petty was recording his Wildflowers album, and was produced by Rick Rubin, guitarist Mike Campbell, and Tom Petty. The sessions would prove to be the last to include drummer Stan Lynch before his eventual departure in 1994. This song was first released as part of the Greatest Hits album in 1993, it rose to number 14 on the Billboard Hot 100, becoming his first Billboard Top 20 hit of the 1990s. Okay, so the song was only released on a Grace Hits album? Yeah. That's that's kind of surprising because they play the, they play the hell out of that one they on the do. radio. And it also topped the Billboard Album Rock Tracks chart for two weeks. The song also was a B-side of You Don't Know How It Feels. Asked if the song was about drugs, Heartbreaker guitarist Mike Campbell said... In the verse, there is still a thing about an Indiana girl on an Indiana night. Just when it gets to the chorus, he had the presence of mind to give it a deeper meaning. My take on it is, it can be whatever you want it to be. A lot of people think it's a drug reference, and if that's what you want to think, it very well could be. But it could also just be a goodbye love song. (laughs) Nice cop-out, asshole. (laughs) So many of those with these songs. Right. In the rest of the interview, Campbell said that the song was originally titled Indiana Girl and the first chorus, Hey Indiana Girl, Go Out and Find the World. He added that Petty just couldn't get behind singing about Hey Indiana Girl, so he changed the chorus a week later. So let's look in on Mary Jane's Last Dance. Last Dance with Mary Jane, one more time to kill the So Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers is an American rock band from Gainesville, Florida, formed in 1976. The band originally comprised Tom Petty, Mike Campbell, Ron Blair, Stan Lynch, and Benmont Tench. The band largely maintained this lineup, with a few exceptions. In 1981, Blair, tired of the touring lifestyle, left the band. His replacement, Howie Epstein, stayed with the band for the next two decades. In 1991, Scott Thurston joined the band as a multi-instrumentalist mostly on rhythm guitar and second keyboards. Blair returned to the Heartbreakers in 2002, the year before Epstein's death. In 1994, Steve Ferrone replaced Lynch on drums. The band is best known for the hit singles American Girl, Breakdown, The Waiting, Learning to Fly, Refugee, and Mary Jane's Last Dance. 
The band was part of Southern Rock, but also at the forefront of the Heartland Rock movement, alongside artists such as Bruce Springsteen, Bob Seger, and John Mellencamp, who arose in the late 1970s and 1980s. The genre issues and the synthesizer-based music and fashion elements popular in synth-pop and new romanticism in favor of a straightforward classic rock sound, and lyrics based on relatable blue-collar issues. While the Heartland Rock movement faded out in the 1990s, the band remained active and popular, touring regularly, regularly until Petty's death in 2017. Their most recent album, Hypnotic Eye, was released in 2014. So, first thing I gotta get out of the way is creepy as fuck video. Oh, it does it have like a Morgan in it? Yeah, well, he's dancing with a dead body, which is Michelle Pfeiffer. Mm. But it is just creepy as shit. Um, you didn't mention my favorite Petty song. Or what's that? My, um, which is Don't Come Around Here No More. Oh, it's a great video. With the Alice in Wonderland theme? Yeah. Yeah, and then they're eating her as cake or whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyways, moving on. But anyway, uh, you know, it's a song. It's, it's one of those things. Is it a drug song? Maybe, maybe not. But the title itself, Mary Jane's Last Dance. Mary Jane. Euphemism. Yeah, yeah absolutely a, a name for marijuana. But, I don't know, what, what are your thoughts? Petty's got a good voice. Um, he oftentimes tunes in and out, kind of like Dylan does. Like, he's got a very Dylan-esque type voice. Okay. But when he tries to sing, he does a really good job. That said, the song may or may not be about drugs. No one can really give a distinct answer on it, and people can take their own meaning and run with it. Mary Jane is a euphemism, as we already determined, so we're going to go with that. So I'll say, yeah, drug song, sure. Okay, fair enough. All right, let's wrap up with trivia, man. All right, so we're gonna go. All right, so we're gonna go ahead and reread the trivia question for you. Yeah. And that is going to be former Van Halen and current Chickenfoot bass guitar player Michael Anthony has many custom-made bass guitars. One of which is his most famous one, and what is it shaped like? Well, I actually came up with three ideas. I'm gonna give you the two that I'm not going to use first, which is a needle and a water bong. Because I think you could make that into a guitar. Probably. But I'm going to go with a pot leaf. You would be incorrect. Okay. It's actually a Jack Daniels bottle. Oh, really? Yes. His most famous one, he'll actually, if you, walk, if you watch any of his old concert videos or watch any of the music videos, you'll see that it looks just like a Jack Daniels bottle. And he's actually got little side compartments for those little minis. Uh, can we say alcoholic? I'm not even kidding because when I went and saw him in concert, he pulled some minis out of the compartments and actually chugged them. Oh, God. Were they filled with iced tea like in Animal House? Maybe. Did it matter? No. <laughs> it was just still <laughs> cool as shit. So, yes, it was a Jack Daniels whiskey bottle. And now with the minus, let's see. Ooh. What does that put you at, do you recall? I don't. I think 14 and 11 maybe? That puts you at 13 and 12. 13 and 12? No, that's not right. That's from last week. Remember, that was the love songs. Uh, no, we did hate songs last week. All right. Okay. Well, because, okay, well, where is this then? Because I just added it last week, and I think it was... Oh, we did the breakup songs. That's right. Yeah, I think it was 14 and 11. Well, where did you save the front page then? Maybe that's why I couldn't find it. No. All right. Well, let's, let's say that you're correct. Let's say now you're 14 and 12. Sounds good. All right, so... Wrong on that one, but you're still doing good. So, that is that for there, and what do you got next? All right, let's get into, uh, you know, the normal stuff. So, if you want to drop us a line, let us know if you like this episode or any other episode, or 
hated this episode or any other episode, you can do that. There's several different ways. The, the easiest way is to say, drop us an email at musicchallengepodcast at gmail.com or at eclecticmediaproject at gmail.com. You can also find us on Facebook at POI Network or at Musically Challenged Podcast. Or the third and final way is Twitter. And that's, you know, if you've ever always wanted to get in touch with us but just couldn't pull the trigger, hey, had this burning desire that couldn't be cleared up with ointments and just wanted to contact us for some reason, well, now you can contact us via Twitter. We are at MCPodcast17. If you want to send us a playlist, 14 different songs, 14 different artists. Have a theme? Great. Don't have a theme? Whatever. Send us some songs. We'll talk about it. We'll listen to it. You'll get your name on the radio or TV or online or wherever you decide to listen to this. Sure. TV? Yeah. Hey, we're talking drug songs. It could be the TV of the mind. There you go. Dick. All right. So <laughs> with that, we want to thank you for listening, and we'll talk to you next week. You have been listening to a program from the Point of Insanity Network. Visit us at poigamestudio.podbean.com for more shows. Follow us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at POI Game Studio.